This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest and Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and on 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. My name is Spomela Lezondiena Mutrala Netulo, Amanda Machaka and Tabis Ondima. Your top stories. Amnesty International filed a petition to stop the Kenyan government from repatriating Somali refugees from the Dadaab refugee camp. South Africa's power utility says operations won't be disturbed after the withdrawal of its biggest coal supplier. In economics, Saudi Arabia's oil firm informs Egyptian authorities that it will halt shipment of petroleum products to Egypt until further notice. And in sports, Bafana Bafana arrives in a camp for their World Cup qualifier against Senegal. Joala Natulo has the news. Thank you, Spumelele. Good afternoon. Leader of South Africa's opposition, the EFF, has launched into a tirade against white people after appearing in his land incitement case at Newcastle in the KwaZulu-Natal province. But Julius Malema says he's not calling for a genocide against whites. His case was postponed to the 7th of next month. Malema told a crowd outside court that the land, sea and everything else in South Africa is the property of black people. He said an, apart- an apartheid-era law was being used by the, uh, by the allies of President Jacob Zuma in an attempt to silence him after he called on black people to take land. He says black people have suffered for centuries. Today we are told don't disturb them. Even when they disturbed our peace, they found peaceful Africans here. They killed them. They slaughtered them like animals. We are not calling for the slaughtering of white people, at least for now. Still in South Africa, the country's ruling ANC Youth League has accused former public protector Tulima Donzela of being a puppet of the opposition Democratic Alliance. The Youth League is further accusing Madonzela of using the State of Capture report to tarnish President Jacob Zuma's image. Speaking at a media briefing in Lutuli House in Johannesburg, ANC Youth League spokesperson Mondlim Kize urged the ANC leadership not to be disturbed by Madonzela's report because it is inconclusive. He also accused Madonzela of being dramatic. It is our considered view that the public protector did this knowing very well that she was launching a DA campaign ahead of 2019 national and provincial government elections. It is our view that there is nothing conclusive that the Drama Queen report has. The ANC Youth League, we want to wish her well in her DA endeavors. Amnesty International has filed a petition in a Nairobi court to stop the Kenyan government from repatriating more than half a million Somali refugees from Kenya's Dadaab refugee camp to Somalia on the 30th of this month. Amnesty International's petition is supported by the Kenya National Human Rights Organization. Justice Nyangaga, Amnesty International Director for Kenya, is of the view that some of the refugees expected to be sent to Somalia, to Somalia rather, may join Al-Shabaab militants and security threats to Kenya and the East African region. Kenya has expressed very strongly the issue of insecurity caused uh, 
by Al-Shabaab. And if we are pushing the Somalis against their wish to go back into Somalia, obviously we are multiplying the risk of security for us because there is open recruitment for Al-Shabaab of the returnees. Unidentified gunmen have freed 21 prisoners in the southern Mali town of Banamba. Late on Sunday, Mali's Justice Minister Mamadou Ismail Konate has described the act as a terrorist act attack. Konate said one prison guard had gone missing after the raid. It was not immediately clear who was behind the attack, but Islamist groups such as Ansadine have stepped up the insurgency in Mali this year. And finally, Cameroon's President Paul Biya is celebrating 34 years of his leadership. He became President of the West African Nation in 1982 when the country's former President Amadou Ahijo resigned. Biya has always been accused of failing to hand over power democratically. A frontline supporter of Biya, Professor Ngolengole Alvis, says they have a moral responsibility to celebrate their leaders' successes. We have the right to rejoice because we have peace in our beloved country. There is liberty, an open, pluralistic, and democratic atmosphere. Our challenge is to permit our national president to ensure a serene implementation of the Greater Achievements Program, the full execution of giant projects, and continuity in the modernization of institutions, which would fine-tune our democracy. For Channel Africa, I'm Cholani Tulo. Thanks, Sholane. It's 1706 Central African time. Amnesty International, the international human rights organization, has filed a petition in a Nairobi court to stop the Kenyan government from repatriating more than half a million Somali refugees from Kenya's Adadab refugee camp to Somalia on the 30th of this month. Amnesty International's petition is supported by the Kenyan National Human Rights Organization. James Shimanyula was in court where the petition was filed and he filed this report for us. As the countdown continues to November the 30th, when the Kenyan government plans to repatriate more than half a million Somali refugees back to their homeland in Somalia, Amnesty International jointly with the Kenya National Commission on Human Rights have filed a joint petition challenging the repatriation. The petition was briefly mentioned in a Nairobi court earlier today, Monday, and it will come up for hearing on the 21st of this month. Just as Nyangaya, Amnesty International Director for Kenya, is of the view that some of the refugees expected to be sent to Somalia may join Al-Shabaab militants and pose security threat to Kenya and the East African region. Kenya has expressed very strongly the issue of insecurity caused by Al-Shabaab. And if we are pushing the Somalis against their wish to go back into Somalia, obviously we are multiplying the risk of security for us because there is open recruitment for Al-Shabaab of the returnees. The question that arises is what Amnesty International and its partner in the petition, Kenya National Commission on Human Rights, plan to do if the petition is thrown out by the court, Nyangaya again. We will hold the government to account. We don't have 
powers of our own. We don't have an army to go and look after refugees in Somali. But we expect that the Kenyan government will do the right thing to protect humanity, including refugees that have been in their midst. Nyangaya has a special message to the Kenyan government. My message to the Kenyan government, let Somali be safe and encourage Somalis to go back voluntarily rather than forceful repatriation of Somalis back to their land. Victor Nyamori is Amnesty International's officer that has interacted with the refugees in Dadabu. He tells us what goes on in their minds as they wait for repatriation at the end of this month. They are very much worried. They don't know the options and they are fearing of what the government will do beyond November 30th. Veteran Kenyan constitutional and civil rights lawyer Dr. John Kaminwa reflects on the international and the Kenyan laws protecting the rights of refugees. The issue of refugees is governed by international conventions. We have signed these international conventions and we have to make sure that we observe the provisions of the international conventions. We have also got our own local legislation that look after the rights of the refugees. My view is that what we are doing to refugees at Dabab refugee camp is completely wrong and in breach of international law. We should not send these Somalis back to Somalia at all. That was Kenyan constitutional and civil rights lawyer Dr. Johnny Kaminwa reporting for Channel Africa. This is James Shimanyula. Gambians are going to the polls in December this year to vote for a president for the fifth time since current leader Yaya Jameh came to power in a 1994 coup. Over the past 22 years, President Jameh and the Gambian security forces have used enforced disappearances, torture, intimidation and arbitrary arrest to suppress dissent and preserve Jameh's grip on power. Ahead of this year's election, the government has repeated these tactics with a crackdown on opposition parties, particularly the United Democratic Party, UDP, that has all but extinguished hopes for a free and fair election. To help us unpack this, we spoke to Jim Wilmington, who is the West Africa researcher at Human Rights Watch. Jim is the author of the report. He is based in the U.S., and we also spoke to Jagan Gray-Johnson, who is the Communications and Advocacy Officer with the Africa Governance Monitoring and Advocacy Project as the Africa Foundations of the Open Society Foundation. The report looks towards Gambia's presidential election, which, as you say, will happen on the 1st of December of this year, uh, and really looks about the history of, of what's happened in Gambia since the beginning of 2016. Um, as this election approached in April uh, we had an opposition activist called Solo Sandang uh, who went out into the streets calling for electoral reform, calling essentially for a more level playing field for opposition to compete in the election with the government of President Jammeh. Sandang, uh, along with some of the people who protested with him, was arrested, uh, and Sandang himself was taken to the headquarters of Gambia's intelligence agency, and he was beaten to death. Uh, And since then, we've seen a much wider crackdown uh, by the Gambian government on members of Sandeng's political party, known as the United Democratic Party, which is the largest opposition party in Gambia, uh, including the the arrest of of more than 90 people and and 30 members of the UDP, including its leader, uh, have been uh, imprisoned and sentenced to three-year jail terms. Mm. So 
basically this report looks at the impact of, of those types of, of abuses mm. which are not new in Gambia and have happened over many years and the fact that it's very hard as you look towards this election to imagine having a level playing field, having a free and fair election mm. when you have the leader of the largest opposition party who's in, in jail and such a, a widespread crackdown against other members of that party. Mm. Coming, staying with you uh, a little bit there, Jim, is the fact, is it the fact that they're being arrested for participating in protests? Is that the main reason of their arrests? Certainly that's the reason uh, that was given by the government. Mm. Uh, the, the Gambian government alleges that those protests were illegal because they occurred without a permit. Um, in reality, it, both under international law and, and just sort of basic proportionality, uh, first of all, you, uh, opposition groups shouldn't have to get a permit to go out and protest uh, where there's no risk to, to public safety. And then, of course, if they do, they certainly shouldn't be arrested on a mass scale and, and sentenced to, to three-year terms with, with one of them be beaten in detention. So in reality, when you look more closely at the reasons for, for why these arrests occurred, I think the Gambian government saw particularly the first protest in April when the opposition went out on the streets calling for electoral reform as the kind of opening of civic mm. space, of opening of, of room for political participation that the government was seeking to discourage and crack down on in such a critical election year. Mm. Let me come to Jagan Gray Johnson uh, joining us from the Open Society Foundations. Uh, looking at this situation that we're seeing, we're seeing uh, a real long-term situation where President Jame has been in uh, power in the Gambia for more than 20 years and the environment would mean that uh, he would maybe because of this kind of environment that we're seeing right now be seeking another re-election for the fifth term and for the first time he will be facing a big major opposition candidate. What does this say right now the political situation that we're seeing in the Gambia Jürgen? Well, I mean, I, I think um, the country is certainly at a crossroads. Um, it is um, unprecedented uh, over the last 22 years, and indeed even um, um, since before 1965, that um, we've actually seen such a groundswell of uh, potential opposition. Um, so clearly, I think uh, um, we've, the country has gotten to a, to a, to a situation whereby uh, um, are actually um, showing their actual dis dissatisfaction uh, with the repressive regime as it stands. Um, but then secondly, I think more importantly, um, is the fact that um, this is going to be unprecedented in the country's history, um, given the fact that uh, they are going to, to the polls, but um, the Electoral Amendment Act 2015 was extremely skewed, um, more towards um, giving uh, undue advantage to incumbency and also disadvantaging very seriously any political opposition moving forward. And hence, that's really the genesis um, of the protests and the crackdown that Jim so ably mentioned earlier on. So again, just to, um, just to ask your question, that uh, this is not going to be any normal year for the country. Um, I mm. think in the next 25 days or so, we're going to see a seismic shift either which way. Jim Wilmington is the West Africa researcher at Human Rights Watch, the author as well of a report on Gambia, of Gambia based in the U.S. And you also heard from Jagan Gray Johnson, who is the communications and advocacy officer with the Africa Governance Monitoring and Advocacy Project at the Africa Foundation of the Open Society Foundation. They were speaking to Benjamin Moshadama. 
Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lillian Strobach, reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango. Channel Africa Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe. This is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa. This is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Ntakwanangatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Mwaigi Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1717 Central African Time is still listening to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Please find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One over there. It's Channel Africa One on Twitter. Now, South Africa's power utility, ASCOM, says it will ensure that there are no disruptions to its coal supply as a result of Tegeta's decision to pull out of its contract with the power utility. The Gupta Oil Company announced its intention to stop its business dealings with ASCOM. ASCOM says... For now, the contract still stands, and when it meets with Tegeta to discuss the matter further, every effort will be made to ensure that coal supplies to its power stations are not disrupted. Murafi Dabane reports. ASCOM has defended its coal supply agreement with the Gupta-owned Tegeta mining. ASCOM says it saved over 3 billion rent through the deal and averted further load shedding as a result of reduced purchase price of coal from Tegeta. ASCOM CEO Brian Mulefe says ASCOM was forced to make a 600 million rent prepayment to ensure that Tegeta is able to deliver on the required volume of coal that ASCOM needed. We prepaid 600 million for coal. And the coal was delivered. Now, I don't know where you get the story that the money was used to pay the, um, the purchase price. Um, I don't know if it was that money or it was other money, but all I know is the coal was delivered. It has also emerged that Tegeta Coal Mining Company has notified ASCOM that it intends terminating its coal supply contract with the power utility. ASCOM says Tegeta did not supply reasons. The public protector has found that dealings with ASCOM and Tegeta were highly irregular. ASCOM's board member, Pat Naidu. Again, let me reiterate. All, all I've done to this morning is give you the facts. It is to be noted that Tegeta did not respond to the open supply uh, RFP for supply of coal to contact, and Tegeta advised ESCOM of its intention to reach a mutual agreement on specific terms to terminate all their contracts. That's the facts, just the facts. I don't know why, but but those are the facts. Thank you. ASCOM says it's considering a review of the public protector's report. The company says it will announce in the future on how to take the process forward. It has raised concerns that it was not interviewed by the public protector before she could release her report. Naidu explains. We are considering a review. We're still in discussion in terms of how we manage that going forward and you'll be advised uh, of process in due course. 
Uh, as I said, ESCOM is a 24-hour business. We talk to global investors to suddenly take a swipe at us without founded facts. Hurts the business, and we have to perform our fiduciary accountability and duty in terms of taking care of the business. ESCOM has maintained that there's nothing unusual with the 600 million rent prepayment to Tegeta for the coal supply. It says that it has paid over 38 billion rent in recent years to date in prepayments to other mining companies. The public protector's report indicates that Tegeta may have used the money to buy its stake in Optimal Coal Mine from Glencoe. ESCOM has rejected claims that it favored Tegeta. I am Tsepo Mungwai in Johannesburg. Kenya's coffee industry has been on its knees for close to three decades now. Production in the East African nation has dropped from 130,000 tons to about 50,000 tons as a result of changes in land use to more lucrative sectors, mismanagement of the industry as well as local and global cartels that rip off farmers. Fortunes are however likely to change for farmers in central Kenya following a partnership between one farmer's cooperative society with an investor from Denmark who now buys the coffee directly from the farmers before exporting it to at least 12,200 supermarkets in Europe. As Sarah Kimani reports, the farmers who exported the first 300 kilograms of processed coffee in September say they will earn 200% more than when they sell the coffee to the Nairobi coffee auction. And then you have the whole bean. This is a whole bean package. Different markets require different uh, types of packaging, but for the Scandinavian markets, we like this pack soft. Uh, when we visit the African Coffee Roasters Processing Factory, about 11 kilometers from the capital, Nairobi, factory workers are busy packaging different brands of coffee ready for the Scandinavian market. Paul Viedebak is a managing director of the African Coffee Roasters. When we're close to the coffee producers, we get much more interesting coffees. We can be in direct dialogue about what is possible. We can work with sun-dried coffee. We can work with micro-lots. We can be much more innovative. And the consumers like that. But this is not where the story starts. The story starts in Odaya, central Kenya. It is here that the Danish-owned African coffee roasters sources its coffee from, as Viderbach explains. Uh, when, when I met with Othaya uh, Farmers Cooperative back in 2011, almost all of their coffee was sold at the Nairobi Coffee Exchange. They had almost no direct trade. Today, five years later, 60-70% of all their sales is through direct trade. Kenya produces about 1% of the world's annual coffee crop. Coffee was once Kenya's top foreign exchange earner. Local and global coffee cartels have worked against the industry, which comprises about 60% small-scale farmers. This is why the partnership between African coffee roasters was embraced by the Farmers Cooperative Society. James Derito is the chairman of the Aya Farmers Cooperative Society. Uh, during those times when we didn't have the cooperation between us and the, the Danish people, uh, we used to get about 80 shillings per kilogram, at times uh, 40 shillings. But now we're getting a tune of 76 uh, shillings this year. Last year we got 80, an average of 62, 61 percent. So you can see now the percentage has gone up. Also the money entering into the farmer's pocket has also gone up.
So that's why you're happy with the ACR. Well, Peter Kefadi is a coffee farmer in Odaya. How much money are you making from coffee? Uh, well, uh, I won't say much because I don't have the, uh, don't have the record, the real record, uh, because most of the time I'm in the church. But, uh, but I, I can say I usually smile to the bank. That is good news for a people who had abandoned their crops for other lucrative sectors. This, despite the fact that Kenya's Arabica coffee is renowned globally for its quality. Uh, because there was no proceeds and there was no profit from that coffee because the, the, the management, the government even did not assist us. This is because by working directly with the farmers, the middleman has been eliminated. The supply chain has been shortened. Until the consumer, you can still have up to a hundred different middlemen. Now most of them basically only trade, so they call each other and move the coffee, but no value is added to the product. So basically we said, why don't we cut away all these middlemen who are not adding value? So basically, when you have that link, when you have the producer on one side, the consumer on one side, and only one link, nothing is wasted in between those two. To meet the strict European standards, farmers attend monthly field schools. The idea is to ensure high-quality coffee that will fetch them better prices. They brought this traceability project. We are able to follow the, the husbandry of coffee from the farm to the wet mill and now to the dry mill. The grades have improved. That quality can be tested right here in their mills in Odaya. Medium, medium, FAQ Sawalich is a good cup. Medium, medium, FAQ is also a nice cup. African coffee roasters have invested 400 million shillings in the project this far, employing 40 people at the factory and generating 75,000 jobs in the rural areas. This year alone, the company has bought 400 bags of coffee worth about 10 million shillings. At home in Denmark, the test bags have been tickled. People are excited about the coffee. They're excited about that the coffee is actually produced to a shelf-ready product in the country of origin. So we've seen a huge rise on the brands where we're using coffee from here, both because we get a higher quality, we get a more innovative product. The Odaya coffee bean will hopefully help shake things up in the Kenyan coffee sector as more cooperative societies embrace value addition and direct exports. Sarah Kimani. Odaya, Central Kenya. 1726 Central African Time. Now the official entry into force of the Paris Agreement on Climate Change, which commits 193 countries to limit global temperature rises below 2 degrees, is an extraordinary milestone. That's according to Paul Hanley, President of Climate Central and one of the civil society groups that took part in a meeting with United Nations Secretary General Ban Ki-moon last week. Ban praised the persistence and leadership of civil society advocates, saying they had made this day happen. The Paris Agreement calls for lowering carbon emissions to slow global warming and more resilience to deal with the damaging impacts of climate change. Henley elaborates. It's an extraordinary day. I mean, this is the day when we celebrate that there is a a pillar of hope, the basis from which we can go forward and solve the climate problem. And I think of this as an extraordinary milestone. It's not the last, but it's going to be moving forward from a base 
and as we go ratcheting, improving. We had to start here, and this is just a, a powerfully important day. Is it anything more than symbolic? I mean, what is going to happen now in terms of actually tackling this huge global problem? Well, that's really why we're here today. Um, many of us from the civil society are uh, saying we have now to really bring our forces to bear on building support for it, uh, making sure that those commitments that have been made by nations are fulfilled, uh, and the players inside those, those countries are supported as well. So, for example, it's really important that the public uh, be rallied to support this commitment, and many of us are responsible for uh, presenting messages, information that says climate change is a really important problem that we must address now and hold our leaders accountable for. So does this coming into force trigger any sort of initial steps, any initial actions that people have to have to follow through on now? Well, it must, it must indeed, and many of the representatives here are working toward actions that, that will reduce emissions, working with uh, industry, investors, uh, working with national governments, of course, to set policies in place. We ourselves are uh, trying to establish that there's a sense of urgency. It needs to happen now. Uh, and that these actions that are taking place, even as we speak, are uh, ones that, that must uh, occur as soon as we possibly can have them take place. The commitments made in Paris are on a sort of national level, but I mean, obviously every strata of society needs to do its bit, doesn't it, in a way now? Well, it does, and it was really striking in Paris to see that while the commitments are national, that underlying it were civil society, uh, corporations, uh, non-profit groups and foundations, a whole range of, of societal groups uh, that said we must make this happen and which will support the national commitments. The so, current rate of warming is, the, is higher than we, than we thought when the, when the Paris Agreement was signed back in December two, 2015. Yes, the latest UN report says that it might be somewhere between two and a half and three and a half degrees, so we've got our work cut out for us. Uh, but we knew, knew all along that the Paris commitments were not sufficient even to reach to the two. And so setting still higher goals, moving forward now on the current goal, but also uh, taking additional actions to make sure that we can get to two or even one and a half, which is the aspiration, of course, is the, the call to action for us and the colleagues that we have who are in the business of conveying the scientific facts of climate change and the impacts associated with we think that it's uh, powerful that Secretary General Ban Ki-moon and uh, the negotiators have recognized these scientific facts that we have been speaking about. So in that sense, uh, we are very happy to contribute and, and uh, will continue to do so. That's Paul Hanley, who is the president of Civil Society Group, Climate Central, and he was talking to UN Raiders Matthew Wells, 1730 Central African Time. Here's Jolana Tula with your headlines. Thank you, Spumelele. Making headlines, South Africa's opposition DA has strongly condemned EFF leader Julius Malema's comment that he and his party are not at this stage calling for the slaughter of white people. Amnesty International has filed a petition in a Nairobi court to stop the Kenyan government from repatriating more than a half a million Somali refugees from Kenya's Dadaab refugee camp to Somalia on the 30th of this month. And finally, unidentified gunmen have freed 21 prisoners in the southern Mali town of Banamba. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo.
This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. 1732 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest. Send us your tweets on Channel Africa 1 or emails info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. And let's go to Haiti now, where the cholera outbreak in that country could have been predicted using new technology that harnesses decades of satellite data, according to a scientific prize winner, Rita Caldwell. The academic from the United States of America has developed a model that can see outbreaks coming up to six months in advance. She was one of the recipients of the Prince Sultan bin Abdulaziz International Prize for Water presented at the United Nations headquarters last week. According to UN reports more than 9,000 people have died from cholera in Haiti since 2010. Dr. Caldwell explains how the model works. This model we have developed utilizes the fact that the bacteria are associated with plankton. These are microscopic creatures, plants and animals, in oceans and water everywhere. And the model allows us to use satellite sensors to measure chlorophyll. And when the plankton become abundant, we know that very quickly the plankton that feed on the chlorophyll-bearing components will become abundant and very likely a cholera epidemic will follow. And we've developed this from data collected for, from India from 1873 till 1973. So this basically just helps in predicting cholera, not really getting you any measures to tackle it? It predicts cholera, but because we are developing this very sensitive technique of being able to extract the entire DNA from a water sample, and then with sequencing and with mathematical algorithms, within minutes from the sequence, we can tell you everything there down to species and strain and substrain, bacteria, viruses, parasites, fungus, which gives us a full pattern. And I'm sure you're aware at present there's a cholera outbreak in Haiti. Do you think your model could help? Our model can help regions like Haiti. In fact, we've published a paper showing that based on the prediction, using the data, historical data from India, we could have predicted the epidemic. In fact, what happened was that terrible earthquake, followed by the hottest summer in 60 years, followed by the heaviest rainfall in the fall in 60 years. And with the population having been disrupted and aggregated into refugee camps, it fit exactly the pattern developed from the India data dating back to 1873 to 1973. And we have also been able to show with application of the model that indeed the southern part of Haiti, we predicted would be most intensely affected, and in fact it has been. What was the most exciting part of your research for you? The most exciting part of our research is the fact that we now can actually measure using satellite images the possibility of a disease in humans, and we've confirmed it 
by our work in Bangladesh, where we actually measured the numbers of cases of cholera and the environmental parameters measured by satellite, and the fit was so precise. So it's no longer just in a research state, it's something that can be applied in countries. It can be applied in countries, and we tried this in a very simple way because we calculated that the plankton are big compared to the bacteria. Simple filtration, and that is in Bangladesh in the remote villages. We did a three-year study where we taught the women who collected water for the families to filter the water using sari cloth folded four times. It gave enough of a filter size that it trapped all the plankton, and we were able to prove a 50% reduction in cholera. So I felt very excited. This was high-tech studies with a simple solution based on science, evidence on science, able to help people in remote villages where access to clean, safe water is not available except by these crude techniques, but it worked. What are your future plans? What do you plan to do with the model now? We hope the model will be adopted by the World Health Organization and and the United Nations as a technique that's of great value. And we're hoping that we can provide safe water for all people in all countries. That's Dr. Risa Caldwell, who's an academic and scientific prize winner based in the United States, and she was talking to UN Radio's Priyanka Shankra. The Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources has declared the region of the Ross Sea a marine protected area. Louis Pugh ocean advocate and United Nations patron who campaigned tirelessly to make this deal a reality, says the deal represents one of the finest victories for the environment and is even more impressive given hands were shaken amid strained international relations between three of the key nations involved in the deal, the European Union, Russia and the United States of America. Yes, it was an incredible meeting last week because what happened was the 24 countries and the European Union, they came together and they decided to protect an area in Antarctica called the Ross Sea. Now, the Ross Sea is the most southern body of water in the world on the edge of Antarctica. So if you were to sail from the bottom of New Zealand and you sail for 11 days, eventually you will get down to the Ross Sea. It's the most remote place on this planet but it's one of the most incredible places. It's literally like a polar garden of Eden. There species found there which are found nowhere else on Earth. It's the home of the Delhi penguin. It's the home of the emperor penguin. But when you arrive there, the sight of this place is just astonishing. There's huge icebergs in the water. There's sea ice. There's emperor penguins, the Delhi penguin, humpback whales, orcas. It's truly an amazing place. And What these countries have decided to do is, because of the threat of overfishing in this region, they decided to come together and set this area aside as a marine protected area, which is a little bit like a national park in the waters. And this is an enormous area which they're setting aside. It's 1.5 million square kilometers. And that's the equivalent to the size of South Africa and Zimbabwe all put together. It's the biggest protected area on the planet. This is an enormous day for the history of conservation of this world.
Now, what would have been the challenges towards uh, the declaration of this area, a marine protected area? The biggest challenge which we faced was trying to get 24 nations and the European Union to agree what the deal would look like and trying to agree this deal in a time when there's so much conflict happening in the world. And these 24 nations in the EU have some long-standing disagreements with each other. So trying to get consensus, because all of them had to agree it, trying to get consensus was a very, very difficult job. My responsibility was to shuttle backwards and forwards to Russia, who were the last country to sign the deal. And you know, I was delighted last week when Russia came on board and signed the deal. What I'm hoping is going to come out of this is, and what I think that this deal shows us, is that Antarctica is a place for peace. It's a place for bridge building. It's a place where we can find common ground. And my hope is that what's being achieved here can be used to foster dialogue and cooperation in other parts of the world. How did the speed of diplomacy manage to convince the countries to come to a conclusion that uh, this area should become really a garden of Eden? This word speed of diplomacy, everybody's been talking about it was coined by a Russian journalist so to try and draw attention to how wonderful this area is and how we really must protect it. What I did was, I'm an endurance swimmer, and I went down to Antarctica. I went and did a series of swims there, and then I went to Moscow to meet the leadership there. And I've been shuffling backwards and forwards ever since to try and get this deal across the line. And, and they described it as speedo diplomacy. Sports is something which unites everybody. And Russia is a country with a very, very strong tradition, obviously, in sport, and especially long-distance swimming. They're some of the best cold-water swimmers in the world. And so by going and doing the swim, these cold-water swims down in Antarctica and then going to Russia, it was a language which united us. It was a language which they could understand. And you won't find one Russian, young boy or young girl, who wasn't taken by their father or mother when they were young and taken to a lake which was almost frozen over in the middle of winter and gone for a swim there. That's what the Russian people do, it's a sort of rite of passage. And so when I went to do these swims, and then went to Russia to talk to them, it, it was a, as I said, it was a language which they understood, and it started the conversation going. This could be seen as a crucial first step in what will be a series of MPA around the Antarctica? Yes, well, I'm very much hoping that. So... This is the first marine protected area, large-scale marine protected area, actually in the high seas. So the waters beyond each country's national jurisdiction are what's called the high seas. And so this is the first one. And the high seas actually represent 45% of the world's oceans. And so until last week, 45% of the world, okay, was largely unprotected. And what I'm hoping is going to happen here now is that we set a precedent, and I'm hoping that we're going to see lots more marine protected areas in other vulnerable parts of the oceans and the high seas, but also around Antarctica. And so personally, I leave now on the 5th of December, I'm going to be sailing down to Antarctica, to the opposite side of Antarctica, to an area called the Antarctic Peninsula, to undertake another series of swims there, and then take my message again to this group called Camelot to try and get another marine protected area down there in the Antarctic Peninsula, which is an area facing rapid climate change 
overfishing and also now a lot of tourism taking place there. That was Lewis Perth, who's the ocean advocate and United Nations patron of oceans, talking to Wandile Kalipa. November is Disability Month in South Africa, but should be a continental event. So let's all make a difference. Channel Africa is calling on all to join us to help needy children everywhere. South Africans are being called on to help Channel Africa help 32 children from Tumela Home for the Mentally and Physically Disabled Children in Ivory Park, east of Johannesburg. Make a difference by donating toys, non-perishable foods, disposable nappies and toiletries. Join Channel Africa on the 10th of November as we broadcast live from Tumelo House as we hand out the donations we received. Be with us as we make a difference. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. At 17.45 Central African Time, Musani Matabula is in studio with your economic news. Thanks, Pumalele, and good afternoon. Somalia looks more likely to strike oil than gas in its long pursuit of offshore reaches, making it easier for the African state to exploit any windfall, but also potentially upsetting the fragile recovery led by its Western-backed government. The waters of Somalia, best known for years of privacy, piracy, may harbor hydrocarbons at a depth where crude is usually found. This according to research conducted by seismic services company Spectrum. Oil revenues could transform Somalia's economy, where many people rely on subsistence livestock farming. And the International Trade Administration Commission of South Africa, ITEC, says imports of uh, cold-rolled steel products, particularly from China, hitting South African producers, potentially paving the way for additional import duties. Domestic steel producers say China, which produces half the world's steel, has been dumping excess output locally. This as consumption at home wanes. Low-priced imports have resulted in low sales volume for South African firms. Meanwhile, South African Power Utility, ESCOM, says it will ensure there are no disruptions to its coal supply as a result of Tageta's decision to pull out of its contract with it. The Gupta-owned company has announced its intention to stop business dealings with the power utility. ESCOM spokesperson Kulu Pasiwe. We don't foresee any interruptions on our coal supply. Obviously, at this stage, it's too early to say, but my suspicion is that the matter will be dealt in the same way as the Glencoe matter. Glencoe, for example, when they sold their mine to Tegeta, they informed us and then they entered into discussions with the potential buyers. And only after the buyers had been um, identified and the contract had been uh, signed that uh, we were informed about uh, who the new buyer will be. And that did not have any bearing on our coal supply arrangements with Tegeta or even the previous buyer. 
Rwanda will sell a three-year treasury bond worth 18.47 million US dollars this month. The funds raised through the bond will be used to fund infrastructure projects. Trading of the bond will begin on the bonds on November 28. Rwanda has been issuing bonds as part of a plan to develop its tiny capital market and fund infrastructure projects. The landlocked nation of 11 million people is trying to cut its dependence on donors to finance its national budget. And Kenyan coffee has been on its knees for close to three decades now, but production in the East African nation has dropped from 130,000 tons to about 50,000 tons as a result of change in land use to more lucrative sectors, mismanagement of the industry, as well as local global cartels that reap off farmers. However, Managing Director of African Coffee Roasters, Paul Vaderberg, says things are now looking up. When we're close to the coffee con- uh, producers, we get much more interesting coffees. We can be in direct dialogue about what is possible. We can work with sun-dried coffee. We can work with micro-lots. We can be much more innovative. And the consumers like that. When, when I met with uh, Othaya Farmers Cooperative back in 2011, almost all of their coffee was sold at the Nairobi Coffee Exchange. They had almost no direct trade. Today, five years later, 60-70% of all their sales is through direct trade. Kenyan earnings from horticulture exports rose 20% to $766 million US dollars in the first nine months of this year. From a year earlier, the data from the Kenyan National Bureau of Statistics has showed flower exports contributed 69% of the earnings, with the rest coming from the export of fruits and vegetables. Horticulture is a key foreign exchange earner alongside tea remittances from Kenyans living abroad and tourism. Now looking at your financial indicators, the dollar trading at 13.54 to the South African Rand at 10.17, Botswana Pula and 9.73 against the Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 0.79 against the British Pound and strengthening against the Euro at 0.89 per dollar. Looking at commodities, uh, gold $1,292, platinum has gone up to $994 per fine ounce, Brent crude oil going down $46.05 per barrel. And that's your economics news for now. Thanks for signing. It's episode Dima has your sports news. Good evening, sports fans. I'm Tabison Dema with the latest sports update at this hour. We begin with soccer news. South Africa's senior men's national team, Bafana Bafana, have arrived in Polukwani for this weekend's World Cup qualifier against Senegal. Tulani Nguenya, the team's doctor, says they are yet to know if there are any injured players in the Bafana team until they carry out medicals later today. Nguenya says the spirit is good in the Bafana camp. And we've got the, the guys look really energetic, motivated, and they're willing to fight for the team. The Kenya national women's football team Harambi Starlets are expected to make the five-and-a-half-hour journey trip to the coastal town of Limbe from Yaounde on Tuesday, ahead of their debut appearance in the Africa Cup of Nations later this month. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi has the story. 
The team arrived in Yaoundé on Friday to play their last friendly match against the hosts on Sunday. The Salets lost 2-1 to hosts Cameroon in the final friendly match despite a gallant showing termed by the hosts coach as a tough opposition. Forward Christian Nafula netted the Starlets' consolation. Cameroon also beat Starlets 1-0 at the Kasarani Stadium last month in their first friendly encounter played in Nairobi. The team will travel to Limbe where they will camp before the Africa Cup of Nations for women that will be kicking off on 19th of this month. Starlets, who are in Group B alongside Nigeria, Mali and Ghana, will be making their debut in the tournament. Kenyan Mary Keitani has become the only second woman in history to register a hat-trick in the New York Marathon after winning her third straight title in the American city since Gretville's five-year run from 1982 to 1986. Channel Africa's Francis Mutegi has more on the story. 34-year-old Kei Tang defended her title in time of 2 hours, 24 minutes and 26 seconds, beating compatriot Sally Kipiego by nearly 4 minutes. Kei Tang completed the 2016 Grand Slam in style, having won in London, Boston and Chicago and now New York to extend her record streak to 17 straight wins in major marathons. It was no show in the men's race for Kenya, with Stanley B. Watt failing to defend his title after he dropped out of the race in the 17-kilometer mark. Eritrea's Girmeg Breselassi ran a fast race to win the race clocking 2 hours 7 minutes and 51 seconds on to cricket news paceman Gahiso Rabara took 5 for 92 as South Africa completed an emphatic 177 run victory over Australia in the first test played at the Waka earlier on Monday morning after dismissing the host for 361 just before tea on the final day the tourists claimed a third successive victory at the Waka after the 2008 and 2012 wins and now take a 1-0 lead in the series, which continues in Hobart on Saturday and conclude with a day-nighter at the Adelaide Oval. Proteas captain Fav Duplessis says he's delighted with everyone's performance. Look, uh, two bowlers, I don't think so. It felt at times, look, it's, it's never easy with two seamers, but all you can ask for is the guys to put their hands up. KG was phenomenal to run in for 31 overs on a deck that was still good to bat on. Um, and to get the results in the end was uh, just a great achievement for him, so I'm really proud of him. We had some harsh words after day one. Uh, we were very disappointed the way we played, and, and we wanted to come back and put in a real solid performance in day two. Uh, the way we responded was, was obviously quite ridiculous. That was an incredible day to do that, um, to turn it around like that, and then we backed it up but in day three again. And since, yeah, since that day one, we've just been unbelievable, so the credit has to go to everyone. There was a lot of different guys putting their hands up. Obviously a nice big partnership there with JP and Dean to make sure that we can take the Aussies out of it. And then once again today, not much happening, but everyone just putting their hand up. Even Temba yeah. getting his first wicket, uh, running in and piling under into the cracks there. Australian captain Steve Smith says they are disappointed after starting off on a positive note. Uh, disappointing. Um, obviously after the first day we were in a, a reasonable position to, to bowl them out for 240 and... At one for 150 odd, we weren't able to, to capitalise from there, and um, we weren't able to claw our way back. Credit to, I think the way Dumini and Elga played, that that partnership really uh, took us took took the game away from us, and it was hard to come back from that. But um, you know, we've got to still look in, at trying to improve and get better in every aspect. That's a spot at this hour. Stay tuned on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
This is Africa Digest. All right, let's review about our stories. Amnesty International filed a petition to stop the Kenyan government from repatriating Somali refugees from the Dadaab refugee camp. South Africa's Piotility says operations won't be disturbed after the withdrawal of its biggest coal supplier. And that was South Africa Digest for this hour from myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luanda Maometin, co-producer Adrian Kenny and the rest of the team. Thanks for listening. Send us emails. Info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za. On SMS, plus 27-82-332-5905. Plus 27-82-332-5905. On Twitter, it's Channel Africa 1. We leave you with Nomaganjani by Nati and Vusinova.
Ta landira ni moni uomvira non